Hello, and welcome back to the Ladies' College podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall, Head of Science here, and I'm delighted to welcome our esteemed guest, Jonathan Shanklin. Jonathan is visiting the Ladies' College to speak to our students about his career as a meteorologist working for the British Antarctic Survey, and indeed, he is one of the first people to discover the hole in the ozone layer. Jonathan, it's nearly 40 years since you were part of a team working for the British Antarctic Survey that discovered the hole in the ozone layer. Um, And you were just a junior researcher back then in 1985. Can you tell us a little bit more about that discovery and how your team came to that conclusion? Yes, I was a a graduate reading natural sciences from Cambridge, and that was mostly maths, physics, chemistry and geology and physics physics. And physics was my major subject, and the survey wanted somebody who had a knowledge of computer programming, an interest in the weather, and a degree in physics. And I was second on their shortlist, but the first person turned me down, so I joined the survey. And one of my jobs was to process data coming back from the Antarctic, and in particular ozone data. And I had to write the computer programs that did all the calculations and everything like that. And we had a backlog of maybe 10 years' worth of data. So... We had an open day when we were showing off our latest science to the public and there'd been concern that the exhaust gases from Concorde and spray cans and things like that might destroy the ozone layer. And me being a naive young scientist thought, nah, I can't possibly be right. I know I'll process this year's ozone data. It'll be exactly the same as 20 years ago when my boss analysed it and people can stop worrying. And the problem was it wasn't the same. In the springtime, we were seeing lower ozone values. And my boss said, oh, no, don't worry about that. It's, it's a one-off. Next year, it'll be high. Well, not so sure. And then eventually, I worked back through the missing data and was able to show that it was a systematic trend over time. And then once you've got a systematic trend, it must be real, or at least to my mind, it must be real in the atmosphere. And that was the discovery of the hole in the ozone layer. It was a bit of luck um, and a bit of skill. But often science is like that. It's luck that makes the big discoveries. That must have been really exciting to you as you were sort of very much a sort of the, the junior partner of it. Did all the work that you do then contribute effectively to the Nobel Prize that uh, Mario Molina got in 1995? Not really to the Nobel Prize. I think what it did contribute to was the signing of the Montreal Protocol, which is the big international treaty that bans the release into the atmosphere of substances that might destroy the ozone layer. And It was certainly our discovery, but I think it also the fact that we had Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister of the time, and she had trained as a chemist before she went into politics. And she understood the science, which I fear that many of today's leaders, when they're looking at climate change, they do not understand the science. And that makes a really big difference to getting these international treaties signed and acted upon. We need better education, educated governance, and it should be almost mandatory for every politician to have at least an A-level in a science subject. As the head of science here, I'm delighted to hear that, and that's a real plug for what science, what difference science can make. And I'm interested actually to talk a little bit bit more about the 1987 Montreal um, Protocol. And I think really that's probably arguably 
the most successful world collaboration we've really ever had in modern times, especially when you look at the time frame, because it was only about 15 to 20 years, I think, from scientists really reporting it, and then actually governments taking decisions and you actually noticing it making a difference. So do you have any idea really why it might have been so successful. I'm really thinking about comparing it today with all the COP and all these empty pledges that today's um, politicians make and we're just not having the impact in looking at climate change today as we did um, in 1987 with the ozone pledges. Yes, I think that the Montreal Protocol was successful for several different reasons. First of all, having Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, she could explain the science to other world leaders and convince them that they had to do something. Second, the manufacturers of the chemicals were quite happy to switch to a different chemical because um, the patents were running out on the original chemicals. They could manufacture different chemical and earn more money. So they were more than happy to switch. And then there was the fact that with a thinning ozone layer, more ultraviolet light coming to the surface more skin cancers, it's a public health issue. So that made a difference. And then finally, somebody came up with a brilliant term, ozone hole. And of course, ozone holes need to be filled in, (laughs) just like holes in the road. And so because people didn't need to change their lifestyles as well, they could keep using their spray cans, keep flying in Concorde. Um, There was no real opposition to proceeding with a treaty. And we could also demonstrate that things were happening very, very quickly. So in the space of little more than a decade, 60% of the ozone layer disappeared. And so it's catastrophically quick. With climate change, everything is much slower. And the evidence that politicians don't understand exponentials is very clear cut with COVID. If they'd acted quickly with COVID, we wouldn't have had the huge peaks and, and deaths but they procrastinated because it seemed to be a slow increase, so we don't need to worry about slow increases. But they, they don't realise that if you, with an exponential, if you act early, you don't get any increase at all. Whereas if you delay until you're on the upswing, then you have a big problem. And so they ended up with a big problem. And the same is true for most of our other environmental issues. Um, they may seem to be changing very slowly, but sooner or later they're going to kick off and then it's going to be too late. As a scientist in the field, there's a lot of what we call climate anxiety amongst young people today. Do you have some hopeful news at all? What 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 are your views as um, a scientist with such knowledge about where we're actually going to end up in the future with climate change? Young people today have a much bigger voice than they did in the past. They're expert at social media and in influencing things. And so you can use your voices to make that difference. But also you can do things on a smaller scale. And one of the the two key things is education. Um, Education for people here so that you understand the problems and can articulate them. Education in the developing world so that women in the third world particularly have a say in their futures at the moment it's all too often the case that they have no say whatsoever. And that's really important. There should be equality for everybody. And if you want to do one single thing, only have one child. 
Right. That's uh, very interesting uh, information and actually, I think, very, very valid. Certainly as head of science here at the college, I interact on a daily basis with our young people and I have a lot of faith that they will solve the problem. They do have to, but I still I think that they are very capable of doing that as well. Right. So um, there's just a few. I'm just curious. There's a little curious question here. You have won a fair few awards, if I may list them. The Edward Appleton Medal, which was at the time called the uh, Tree Award. That was in 2001. Distinguished um, Atmospheric Physics. You were awarded the Polar Medal for your work in the Antarctic by Her Majesty the Queen in 2006. In 2020, this is exciting. I think we've got to tell me more about this. You have actually got a glacier named after you, the Shanklin Glacier. Oh, that must have been the pinnacle of your career. Um, actually, I would say the pinnacle was getting a Blue Peter badge. Oh! So I was given a green Blue Peter badge for the discovery of the ozone hole. So that was, that was I think, the, the, the top spot in some ways. <laughs> and yes, meeting Her Majesty and shaking her hand and having a conversation with her. And she had been well briefed and she knew every single person who was being awarded uh, an honour on that day. And so we had a minute's worth of conversation about what I'd done. Um, but yes, the glacier, it's in a, a fairly remote part of Antarctica, so I think it will survive for some time. But eventually, we are already seeing climate change in action in Antarctica. Many glaciers are in retreat. And I think, although mine is quite a long way south, that will eventually start retreating. And then it may turn into Shanklin Valley. Oh, dear me. That, yeah, that leads me actually on to my next question. You've made over 20 trips to the Antarctic. It sounds absolutely fascinating. I've never actually been to the Antarctic. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those trips? And I'm actually quite interested as well in the change now and 20 years ago as well that you've actually noticed. I've been very lucky to be paid to go to Antarctica. And that's something that most people will have to pay money out. And it's quite expensive getting there. But it's a wonderful place. Um, all the stations are very different. So the most southerly station, which is the most recently one that I visited, in some ways that's a bit like the East Anglian Fens, um, but there's no trees. You've got a flat horizon all the way around you um, with ice stretching to the horizon. And one thing that that taught me was that life needs water. At Halley, all the water is frozen and in the two months that I was there most recently, we saw one penguin, a few skewers, some snow petrels and some storm petrels. And that was it for the entire stay there. But go a bit further north to the waters of the Antarctic Peninsula and South Georgia. And life is teeming because there's liquid water. And I've been fortunate enough to see an albatross chick hatching from its egg and then a nice blue uh, ball of uh, feathers um, once it had come out. I've seen whales um, sunbathing on the surface of the sea uh, along the Antarctic Peninsula, seeing glaciers tumble down to the sea, the lumps of glacier ice floating in the water. And as they rock backwards and forwards in the, in the swell, you can hear a snap, crackle, pop as the bubbles of ice burst um, that have been trapped maybe for a thousand years time in the in the ice it sounds absolutely beautiful and i've certainly had a little look at some of the pictures on your presentation and they look absolutely delightful and one day maybe i think i'd like to go there can i really ask you a question which worries me a little 
as Antarctica melts, and indeed, if we look at the other end of the planet, the Arctic melts, there's a lot of countries there wanting to get their flag in there because potentially, of course, um, millions of years ago, there were forests there. So potentially there's an awful lot of oil there and precious minerals. Do you think in the future we're going to be able to preserve our um, environment there or are we going to end up with sort of wars over this bit's my land, this bit's mine and start to exploit the um, minerals and resources there? For the Antarctic, there's this international treaty, the Antarctic Treaty, that makes Antarctica a continent for science and it bans some activities such as mineral prospecting. It bans armaments from Antarctica. It bans nuclear power from Antarctica. And the peer pressure from all the signatories is such that that treaty works very well. So even during the Falklands War, we were in Antarctica having cordial relations with the Argentinians. So that sort of thing, it's apolitical, and it, at the moment, at any rate, it is, it's a working treaty that is holding up. The Arctic, though, um, it's somewhat different, particularly Greenland. And Greenland, the ice is melting there, but Greenland is a claimed island. Uh, so that it shouldn't be affected by the, the existing politics. But it's the routes throughout the Arctic and who has the jurisdiction for the mineral resources that are in the seabed and so on. And that may well lead to conflicts as to who has the rights to go seabed mining, not only in, in the Arctic, but in, say, the Pacific. And seabed mining, I, I foresee, is the next environmental catastrophe because many countries see it as a free source of the minerals needed for solar panels and the like and car batteries to replace the fossil fuels. But at the moment, that environment is untouched by our hands. Gosh, and I hope it stays that way as well. I think that's a, another area where we need the, the voice of the young to say, look, leave it. Um, just because we can't see what's going on doesn't mean that it's damaging. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And let's hope in the future that the young people we're educating today, who are the leaders of the future, we're educating them to understand the beauty of nature and actually the symbiosis nature of how we can survive on this planet as well. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Jonathan. Can I just ask you a little bit about Guernsey? Um, you've not been here very long. How are you finding our island, our little island? It's a, a lovely little island. And when I first arrived, I was really struck by the the earth and stone hedges <laughs> and the narrow roads. Um, I've been quite impressed by the wind over the last few days. Uh, we get a lot of that. It's a bit <laughs> stormy. But... In the Antarctic, we, we get quite a lot of wind as well. So it's something I'm used to. Also, the, the smell of the island, um, it's that very clean smell that you get on small islands. So it, in that sense, it's quite reminiscent of my time on South Georgia, um, where you're on an oceanic island. And it, it, it's a very clean environment. Uh, you don't smell the petrol fumes that you get in the big cities in, in England. And it was something, again, something I noticed going to the Antarctic. You come back, oh, this this place really stinks when you get out of <laughs> yeah, England. Yeah. Um, you get used to it, but equally, I'd much rather have the, the pure air 
that you, you have in an island like this. Oh, well, I'm delighted our little island is compares uh, February with South Georgia, <laughs> certainly. Um, could I just ask you now, as um, a girls' school, we certainly like to empower our, um, our students. Could I ask you about the sort of gender balance in terms of working at, on the British Antarctic Survey? I asked this from a little point of um, sort of knowledge back in the day when I was at Cambridge as well. And that was one of the things um, I looked into. And at that time, um, when I was a youngster, there were very few women in the British Antarctic Survey. Has that changed nowadays? It's changed dramatically. Um, once I started being in a position where I could employ people to go to the Antarctic, we would regularly interview around about half a dozen people for the meteorological post down there. And the majority of people we employed were female because they were better. Ooh. And it's as simple <laughs> as that. Um, they were generally had a more mature approach. They were more competent and they had a wider range of interests to some of the, the guys. So I was more than happy that once we were allowed to take people, women, down to the Antarctic, that we should. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly uh, glad to hear that. So could I, um, just for um, interest, if someone was wanting to maybe look at um, going to the British Antarctic Survey and some, doing some science there, what kind of qualifications and subjects would you recommend that they study? So it depends really what your area of interest is. So we have a very broad range of scientific study fields. Um, so there's marine biology, there's glaciology, um, there's ter some terrestrial biology, there's the upper atmospheric physics, there's the meteorology, um, there's ice chemistry. Um, so that gives you a bit of an idea that there are opportunities for biologists, for physics, physicists, for chemists, for mathematicians and computer scientists, because increasingly we're using AI packages to analyse the data that's coming back, and that can often detect patterns that humans haven't managed to spot, and so on. So definitely do a science degree at university. There is usually some scope for um, internships at the survey to get a, a bit of a taste. And then we have increasingly large numbers of PhD students who are attached to a university, but also attached to the survey. And they will spend three or four years with us researching a, a, a sort of fairly narrow area of study. And in fact, at the moment, I'm missing all our PhD student presentations uh, because they're having the, the student presentations today and tomorrow about the, the, the exciting research that they're doing. Yeah. Oh, that, that sounds excellent. So a science degree, I'm guessing there's a graduate entry to perhaps um, the, the, the British Antarctic Survey and also a postgraduate entry as well. Yep. So that sounds really super. So there's, there's really loads of opportunity. But if you're less interested in science and have other interests, then there's plenty of scope. So there's all the technical support staff, um, ranging from IT through plumbers, carpenters, electricians, chefs, pilots. And in fact, one of the women that I employed as a meteorologist, when you're down there, you get a chance to fly our little planes that we use for getting around in Antarctica. And she found that so wonderful, she went and trained as a pilot. And now she's one of our main pilots down in Antarctica. 
you make it sound very exciting. I hope one day maybe I uh, will get there. So <laughs> uh, thank, thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Delight talking to you as well.